Well, good morning, Summit family. If you have your Bibles, I want you to meet me in Luke chapter 6. Luke, Luke chapter 6. My name is Brian Loritz. I'm one of the teaching pastors here uh, at the church. And uh, it is just a joy and delight to be here with you all uh, at my favorite campus, Briar Creek Campus. Yes, 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 yes. Just keep that between us, okay? I don't want that getting out to Alamance uh, or some of these other campuses. But what a joy and delight it is uh, to actually be here. And it's just a great weekend, especially for me, a Georgia Bulldogs fan. God put his grace on us yesterday as we gave Tennessee the beat down. Uh, and the same gracious God caused Alabama to lose. Um, man, he's just good, isn't he? Absolutely good. Um, all right, if you're an Alabama fan, I guess you don't love Jesus the way I love Jesus. Uh, all, that, all that good stuff. And today's my mama's birthday, so it is a great, great day uh, for me. Thank you for all of you who gave her the golf clap. I'll pass on your condolences uh, to her. Uh, Luke chapter 6, if you're uh, hanging with us, uh, we have been in a series in which we've been talking about generosity. Um, and I want to take you to a passage of Scripture. Actually, today it's me. Uh, it's Pastor J.D., Pastor uh, Curtis speaking across all of our campuses, and uh, we just want to really talk about this much-needed issue. I'm going to give biblical clarity. Uh, I'm, I'm going to put you at ease, and then hopefully the Spirit of God is going to poke in our business as well and challenge us. Grateful to have my youngest on the front row talking about generosity. We're going to unpack this tonight around the dinner table. But pick me up uh, in verses 37 and 38 of Luke chapter 6, actually. We'll be looking at verses 20 to 38, but I'll just read the final two verses. Jesus says, judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Father, I need grace. I need clarity. I need courage, Lord God. I, I need favor. I need your spirit. As we press into this incredibly sensitive topic that Jesus, you spoke um, the most on, and that is this idea of finances and generosity. Lord, I don't want to just preach a safe message. I want to preach a Christ-exalting message. And so, Spirit of the living God, I do pray that you will edit out everything, Lord God, that um, does not bring you glory, does not edify your people, and edit in everything that does glorify, challenge, and build us up. God, press into us. We live in America, the Disney world of the world. And I don't want to be deceived. I know even in just studying this text this week, I mean, there are many ouch moments as I've just been personally challenged. And yet, Lord God, I, I, I don't want us to leave feeling guilty. Guilt will never change the fundamental structures of our heart. But help us to do the work to connect this with the gospel out of a response for all you've done for us. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may not have heard the name Emma Lazarus, but chances are you have 
um, you have heard of uh, a little poem she wrote called The New Colossus. Uh, this poem actually sits uh, on the pedestal of the Statue of Liberty. Emma wrote this back in the late 1800s, and it was written, hopefully, to express the aspirations of our nation. Look with me, if you will, at her words in this poem, the new Colossus. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless tempest tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door." These words, again, were hopefully going to express the sentiments of our nation, that we wanted to be a place where people from all walks of life could come, a place especially for the marginalized. Now, relax, this is not a sermon on immigration. I'm not here to cast kind of any opinion on that, but what I want you to understand is her words are actually Luke's sentiments as he peers into the life of Jesus. What I mean by that is there are four authorized biographies on the life of Jesus. If you are new to Christianity, or maybe you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, uh, they're what we would call the Gospels. Uh, if you're new to the Scriptures, that's a great place to start. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, if you want to start with Genesis, that's great. You'll love Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus might be a little tough for you, uh, but the four Gospels is a great place to start. Now, you might be wondering, what are the differences in the Gospels? Luke differentiates himself from Matthew, Mark, and John because Luke perks up and pays special attention uh, towards Jesus' ministry towards the marginalized. If you want to know what makes Luke's gospel different from the other gospels, it is Luke kind of puts a spotlight on Jesus' ministry to those in whom society of his day would deem to be the outcast. So, for example, uh, Luke pays special attention to Jesus' ministry, for example, to women. If you know anything about the first century world, women were regarded to be as less than second-class citizens. They couldn't serve as witnesses in court. And so what does Luke do? He pays special attention to the fact that it was women who were the first eyewitnesses to the resurrection. I mean, you just can't make this stuff up. Like if, if I'm trying to pass myself off as a credible biographer of Jesus in the first century world, I'm not going to put that in there, but Luke does. In fact, two chapters later, I want to encourage you to read it in the opening verses of Luke chapter 8. What does Luke do? He says, I want you to understand Jesus' whole ministry was financed by women. It's unbelievable. So Luke is constantly spotlighting Jesus' ministry towards women. He's constantly spotlighting Jesus' ministry to another marginalized segment of society, children. We see um, uh, Jesus getting highly offended and ticked off when people want to hinder children from coming into the kingdom. And then we also see Luke pay special attention of Jesus's ministry towards the poor. In fact, right on the second page of Luke's biography, we, we find Jesus mentioning um, or the idea of Luke mentioning the poor. Uh, in fact, Luke's uh, first sermon that he documents of Jesus in Luke chapter 4, Jesus says, uh, uh, the favor of the Lord is upon me. He has called me to preach good news to the poor. And then look at how our passage opens up. Again, this is Luke highlighting Jesus' ministry. Jesus is giving his sermon on the plain. This is not Jesus' sermon on the mount. 
In fact, plane is P-L-A-I-N, just in case you wondered if Jesus is on a 747 when he's giving this. He is not. It is Jesus' sermon on a level place known as a plane. It's different than his sermon on the mountain, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. And notice what he says in verse 20. And he lifted up, up his eyes and, uh, on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, not poor in spirit, who are poor. For yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. You see what, Jesus, what Luke is doing? He's highlighting Jesus' words to the poor, the hungry, the weak, the excluded, the marginalized of society. And he is saying, blessed are you. Now, I want to be careful here. Luke is not deifying the poor or the oppressed. I think that's a good word for our cultural moment. In our cultural moment, uh, we have swung the pendulum way to the other extreme in America to which we are deifying the down and outs of society. There's a certain thing called intersectionality, which pretty much says the more boxes of oppression you can check, the more virtuous you are. Please, I want you to understand, God calls us to care for the poor, but your socioeconomic status does not get you into the kingdom of heaven. There will be many poor people in hell. What gets us into the kingdom is not our tax bracket. It's the fact that we have been saved by grace through faith. But I want you to understand what Luke is saying, and here's my punchline to you, is that the kingdom of heaven will be filled with the marginalized of society. And what this means for us, practically speaking, is if the kingdom of heaven will be filled with the marginalized of society, then, Brian, your dinner table should be. Your home should be. Your relationship should reflect that. And the only way we can get there is through something called generosity. So I want to talk about generosity. I didn't think anybody would say amen on that one. I didn't hear any claps or any of that. I mean, let's just call it what it is. I mean, guys, listening to a sermon on generosity is like, hey, you need to get your prostate examined. It's incredibly invasive, isn't it? It's incredibly invasive, incredibly uncomfortable. I don't want to hear this, but it's sort of like, okay, I get it for you, but I'm kind of the doctor giving the prostate exam. It ain't exciting for me either. And I want to poke into one of the most sensitive compartments of our life, how we steward finances. And I want to do it from a different angle. Please notice how Jesus' sermon on the plane starts. Over and over and over again, Jesus says, blessed, blessed, blessed. The original language is Greek, and the Greek word for blessed means, means full. It means happy. It means joyful. In other words, what Jesus is setting before us is not the pathway of obligation, but the pathway of delights. 
This is for, for yes, his glory and for the good of others, but, but it is also for, the, for our joy. Many of you sitting here right now, you know the fullness that oftentimes comes with generosity. Some of you all are, you, you know the fullness of fostering. I'm saying we're going to make room in our table, room in our homes for the marginalized of society. And, man, you know what it's like on one hand to have your heart ripped out because it's like a revolving door. I'm constantly welcoming. I'm, I'm constantly saying goodbye. But there's a fullness and a sweetness that comes with that. Others of you know the fullness, the joy of, of adopting. I mean, my, my youngest sister is adopted, and I, mean, I just know the joy that my parents uh, in the long run have is they, 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 they've created space and room, not only in their lives, but now they, they look at her and she's following Jesus and married and kind of continuing on the godly legacy because they made room at their tables for the marginalized of society. There's a, there's a fullness that comes with that. Others of you know the fullness of writing the check to help people adopt it. Others of you know the fullness of saying, listen, I'm going to give up my vacation time, reallocate that to go on a missions trip, or I'm going to go above and beyond the tithe and help kind of launch out financially a church plant or or support a mission. like there's a fullness and a sense of fulfillment of generosity. In fact, generosity stories are inspiring. I've never heard of an inspiring keeping story. Like I've never been moved by Hey, man, we had this awesome opportunity to support this, uh, this church plan, but we decided to keep the, mo- the money and buy another purse. Like, that doesn't raise the hairs on my arm. What moves the needle, what, what just kind of resonates with our story, isn't keeping stories, but giving stories. So the thread that runs through our text is generosity. Now, now let, let me just say this. I think it's important to say it's a, it's a message that, um, that me and Pastor J.D. and Pastor Curtis, we, we really just kind of huddle together and want to make sure we're on the same page with this. Listen, I, I understand um, in this room right now there are probably plenty of you who have deep church hurt, deep church trauma around this very issue of giving. I got a cousin of mine, she, she called me a couple years ago. Um, she called me to say, look, I just got saved. We've been praying for her for years, and she comes to the altar, she gets saved, true story. Um, and so they kind of usher her from the altar to a little prayer room, and in the prayer room, the first question they asked her, I couldn't believe it, she says, this sounds kind of weird, Brian, I know you're a pastor. I just want to ask her, the first question they asked her, say, hey, we need to see your W-2 so we can track with what you should be giving. So some of y'all come from that. Some of you come from those backgrounds. I've been in church services where, hey, we're going to have the $100 line here, the $50 line here, the $20 line. I've seen all that foolishness. So some of you have a natural allergic reaction. And then as a pastor, I'm giving it to you, and I just want you to understand the punchline of this is not be generous towards Summit. I'm more concerned with you having a generous heart. So let, maybe, maybe we start with, let's just start with a generous heart, and what does that look like? Should Summit be, be kind of the, the expression of at least some of that generosity? I believe so, but, but let's just back up and let, let's just even say, this message is not about how you allocate the resources that God has blessed you with towards Summit, but, but are you just generous? 
So I want to dive in. Right on the heels of talking about the poor, Jesus now turns his attention to the rich. He goes from bless, bless, bless to woe, woe, woe. Look at verse 24. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. A couple things need to be said here. Just like we said earlier, that just because you're poor does not automatically put you in the kingdom. Just because you're rich does not automatically put you outside the kingdom. Let's be real clear on that. There are Many examples in the Bible of incredibly wealthy individuals who are incredibly godly. I could talk about Abraham, who Genesis 13 says was, was wealthy. I, I could talk about Joseph, second in command of Egypt, he's wealthy. I could talk about Daniel, second in command in Babylon and Persia. I could talk about wealthy or, or Lydia, wealthy, or Philemon, wealthy. You just can't read your Bible and come away with the sense of uh, to be rich is to be ungodly. And second thing, and probably more important that I need to say to you is, you know, oftentimes I read these passages and I, I think about those people over there. Like, this isn't talking about me. I mean, it's just kind of my assumption. When what you need to realize is, a recent statistic say, says, if, if you make minimum wage, so Jay, if you make minimum wage, bruh, you're wealthier than 70% of the world. So this text isn't about those people over there. My guess is it's most of us in here. Jesus, hear it now, is not anti-us having wealth. He is anti-wealth having us. Let me give that to you again. Jesus is not against us having wealth. He is against wealth having us. A couple chapters later in Luke chapter 12, a, a young man comes to Jesus and saying, listen, Jesus, I need you to, to, to tell my brother to split the share of the inheritance with me. And then Jesus goes on to tell the story of a very wealthy and greedy landowner. Look at what he says in Luke 12, 15 with me on the screen. Jesus says, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. I love one translation. One translation says, watch out for greed. Huh. I find it interesting. Jesus never says watch out for adultery or watch out for lying or watch out for stealing. Why does he say watch out for greed? Because I think every other sin you know immediately when you've crossed the line. But greed is so subtle. You don't realize you've crossed the line until you're way beyond it. Watch out for greed. The truth be told, this is something that all of you struggle with. I believe it is something all of us struggle with. A.W. Tozer in his classic book, The Pursuit of God, says this. Will you look at it with me? There is within the human heart 
a tough, fibrous root, a fallen life whose nature is to possess, always to possess. It covets things with a deep and fierce passion. The roots of our hearts have grown down into things, and we dare not pull up one rootlet lest we die. Things have become necessary to us, a development never originally intended. So can we take a quick quiz? It's four questions to help us gauge whether or not we've crossed the line. Number one, what do I think about when my mind slips into neutral? Just, what do I think about when I'm not even trying to think about? Randy Alcorn, this week I've been rereading his wonderful book, Money, Possessions, and Eternity. Highly commend it to you. Randy Alcorn, Money, Possessions, and Eternity. And I love what Randy Alcorn, how he defines coveting. He says, coveting is a preoccupation with anything God hasn't given us. Coveting is a preoccupation with anything. God hasn't given us. Guilty. Number two, not who, but what would I most hate to lose? Number three, not who, but what gives me the most pleasure? Number four, let me just park here for a minute. Have life's amenities become necessities? You'll forget this little homespun just kind of analogy. Uh, I started preaching when I was 17 years of age, um, and uh, I'm the son of a great preacher, and immediately people, uh, not because I deserved it, but to just say thank you to the blessing that my dad had been to them, you know, here I am 17, 18, 19 years old, and I got, I got people putting me on planes to go preach places. Unbelievable. And I just remember those early days just being blown away. I mean, are you kidding me? You're, you're paying for my plane ticket for me to go preach somewhere? Bring on the middle seat. Who, who cares about the middle seat? And then a little while later, it was, ah, I got to have the aisle seat. And a little while later, it was, oh, what's this new thing called Delta Comfort or Economy Plus? Ah, I got to have that. And a little while later, I start getting some Sky Mile status and Man, I'm fasting and praying I get the upgrade. (laughs) Then I'm getting mad I don't get the upgrade. Then it's, let's just just cut out that upgrade list altogether. Let's just go ahead and buy. Hear me, this message is not about, is Economy Plus wrong? Is an aisle seat wrong? Is the upgrade wrong? Is is buying a first-class ticket wrong? Don't miss it. What I'm trying to show you is just the deceitfulness of my own heart amenities started to become necessities. What's that for you? What's that for you? Now hear me. Here's my problem with this text. And I want to pull you into this tension. My problem with this text is, on one hand, Jesus Christ is exceedingly clear. Clear message on generosity. 
Generosity is the way of the kingdom. In fact, it's not just the way of the kingdom. It is a sign of authentic salvation. Look at verse 35. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. He's not saying give to get saved. What he is saying is the way you know you're saved is you give. Did you catch that? He is not saying be generous to get saved. That's work salvation. What he is saying is saved people are generous. So here's the tension. Jesus, I got it. Clear message on generosity. Now, now, now here's how my, my, my mind works. Okay, but can you tell me how, how much square footage in my house is too much? Just give me the details. How much is too much to spend on a vacation? Tell me, Jesus. How, how, how much is too many golf clubs? Can I upgrade the driver once a year, once every three years? And Jesus like, I've seen your game, you're good. Driver ain't your issue, bro. So, so here, here's, here's what I want you to see. Exceedingly clear. On the one hand, exceedingly clear on generosity on the other hand, nothing as it relates to details. Which now leaves room for a lot of legalism. You with me on that? Which is why, look at verse 37. In context, I think this is why Jesus is saying, don't judge. See that in context? In context, because there's tension... I think what judging means is, is taking something the Spirit is saying specifically to Brian and Corey Loritz as it relates to their finances, size of house, where you live, and then wanting to use that as an arbitrary standard for everybody else. We want to make people in our image and not leave room for them to reflect his image. So I love Charles Spurgeon, man. He's one of my favorite guys in church history. Charles Spurgeon, great 19th century preacher and pastor in London, pastor one of the uh, first uh, kind of modern-day mega churches. Charles Spurgeon, you should also know, whenever he traveled by train, he was always in first class. So here's Charles Spurgeon's story. goes, true story. Uh, he's rushing to make his train, and, uh, and, and there, there's another preacher, and the preacher stops Spurgeon, and they start having a conversation. Finally, the conductor gives the last call all aboard, and, and this other preacher takes a dig at Spurgeon. This other preacher says, oh, man, I'm, I'm, I'm going to get into the coach section of the train to save the Lord's money. And Spurgeon, without missing it, says, and I'm going to get in the first-class section of the train to save the Lord's servant. See the tension here? And how easy it is for us to pull up at someone's house for dinner. And just our own kind of pharisaical hearts. See the size of the house where it's a gated community and assume they're greedy. How easy it for us to just get on social media and, and see where so-and-so is vacationing and, and assume they're greedy. Jesus says, don't judge. You're not the fourth person of the Trinity. So 
So I want you to see the extremes here. On one extreme is materialism, prosperity theology, that seeks to put my identity in my things. On the other extreme is asceticism, poverty theology, that seeks to put my identity in what I don't have. I remember pastoring a church one time, man, and there was a group of of young 20, 30-something individuals, and I mean, God blessed them. They had caught a vision for the kingdom and this whole thing of incarnational ministry, and they felt like the Lord was calling them to to move from a, a certain kind of neighborhood and to move into an impoverished neighborhood. Praise the Lord. And then they started acting like Pharisees looking down on other people who weren't living in that same neighborhood. Man, self righteousness is something else. Both are wrong. What Jesus gives us isn't materialism or asceticism. He gives us a third way, and that third way is not balanced. It's not the safe way. It is a radical, defiant way. It's the way of generosity. To be clear, though, Jesus now shows us that generosity is not reciprocity. I want you to look at verse 27. Right on the heels of talking about rich and poor, Jesus says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also, and from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you and bless you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same, and if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you, even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. You see what he's saying here? He's talking about reciprocity. He goes, listen, we're we're all good at reciprocity, right? You be kind to me, I'll be kind to you, because your kindness to me kind of puts me in in, in moral debt to you, so I'll respond in kind. You, You strike me on the cheek, reciprocity says, I'll do something back to you. That's the law of reciprocity. You treat me one way, I'll treat you kind of that same way. Jesus instead says, be generous, which is upping the ante. Don't just kind of respond in kind to people who do good or or who do bad things to you. Bless even those who curse you. Go the extra mile. See, See how he's still dealing with this idea of generosity? Like, I never go when I pay my mortgage. I'm generous. No, 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 you're paying what you owe. So one of my favorite stories of my grandfather, when he was nine years old, uh, he, he actually grew up here in North Carolina. Nine years old, he's in Conover, North Carolina. And uh, as my grandfather tells it, uh, he got spanked by his father for something he didn't do. Nine years old, so this would have been 1923, 1923, nine years old, he gets spanked for something he shouldn't have done. So he does what any kind of rational nine-year-old would do. Uh, he ran away from Conover, North Carolina to Savannah, Georgia. He gets to Savannah, Georgia. He's nine years of age. I guess my grandfather had a high sense of justice. 
gets to Savannah, Georgia, uh, meets this lady who owns a restaurant and a boarding house. At nine years old, he negotiates with her to get a job and to be able to rent a room. And, and so that's what he does. Nine years old, working in a restaurant every single month. He's just kind of paying his, his rent on this room. And then four years later, he's 13. He says, I think I'll go home now. At the age of 13, he tells the lady he's been paying rent to for four years, hey, listen, I'm out of here, I'm going back home. And she says, okay, cool, hold on. She then comes and gives him a stack of cash. It was all the rent he'd been paying her for the last four years. Now hear me, reciprocity is him paying the rent. Generosity is her giving him all the cash. Postscript to the story. Do you know I never in my life heard my grandfather say anything negative about white people? Because this lady was white. Generosity changed his perspective. I believe that when the church of Jesus Christ is generous, when we're not leaning on government to do what the people of God should be doing, that authenticates our witness to the world. What if the people of God would just be generous and we're, we're going to empty out the foster care system. We're going to empty out. We're, we're going to be known on the front lines of tutoring. We're going to be the first one to serve. Could it be the critiques we're getting is because we're just not generous? As we round third and head for home, Jesus ends with this incredible promise. Give and it will be given to you. Good measure. Pressed down. Shaken together. Running over will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Jesus is using a farming analogy. It's a farming analogy his Jewish audience would have understood really well. During harvest season, uh, kind of the way that you got paid is um, you were always kind of gifted the last basket of what you had collected. Now, these baskets were big, they were heavy, and so uh, because of that, what you had is a lot of the kind of the harvesters, they would only fill their baskets up about half full or kind of two-thirds full. Just kind of picture a bag of potato chips at the supermarket, right? Have you ever been so disappointed because you got a bag of potato chips and it's like four potato chips in there. That's kind of like the first couple of baskets, right, they would present to them. But then that last basket, which was theirs, it ain't a bag of potato chips. Because it was theirs, what they would do is they'd fill it to the brim and they'd press it down, they'd shake it so they could get more in it, be running over because that was theirs. That is what Jesus says God will do to you when you're generous. Now, because Pastor J.D., Pastor Curtis, and, and, and myself are preaching this across all of our campuses today, we wanted to make sure we ended on the same page. And so what you're getting is what everybody else is getting at this moment. We want to give you kind of the five laws of generosity. These aren't just academic principles. These are principles that Corey and I have just seen God unleash in our lives. Law number one, the harvest is limited to the planting. Here's what we're saying. God multiplies what you give. 
some of us are thinking, man, I just, let me have my finances multiply and then I'll give. No, no, no. We give as an act of faith and then God multiplies. Sort of like the bank. You don't collect interest on stuff you haven't deposited. You with me? You deposit first and then the interest comes. It's just all over the Bible when Jesus feeds the 5,000 and all the multitude is there and there's a little boy that says, here's my kind of, here's my lunch, man. I, two pieces of fish, few loaves of bread, and he gives it and then what happens? Jesus puts his hands on it. After he gives it, it's multiplied. I could take you to 1 Kings 17, the widow of Zarephath. She's starving down to her last meal. She only has enough for her and her child to eat. And what does the prophet Elijah say? Give it to me first. She does it by faith, and then what happens? It's multiplied. So I can just be vulnerable with you, man. I just remember, you know, being in Los Angeles in the 1990s, going to seminary, working at a church. I'm making $18,000 a year, no benefits Southern California. And I'm just sitting here and I'm hearing sermons like this. I'm just going, there's just no way. It was a lack of faith. Now, what's funny is when I met my wife making the same salary with her fine self, I found the money. It's amazing how that works, isn't it? What is God saying to you? What does that look like for you? God says, trust me with it. Law number two, the harvest always comes later than the planting. You don't plant corn one day and get it that same day. It always, it always, it always comes. I mean, this happens in a million directions in life. I mean, my, my frustration with dieting is I want to eat one salad, look in the mirror, and be like, 20 pounds gone. That's not how it works. You always reap later than you sow. Um, one of our campus pastors, I won't tell you his name, his initials are John Muller, and um, Here's John. He tells a story of just growing up in rural South Carolina, and one of the practical jokes he loved to do is during an aerating season, he'd go to a, um, a person's field where they were trying to grow stuff, and he'd just, him and his friends would just plant random stuff they weren't even trying to grow, like watermelons and potatoes and all this stuff, and he'd plant it in there. And Muller says, the hardest thing about this is I'd have to wait for months until I could laugh. Pray for John Muller. You always reap later than what you sow. Law number three, the harvest is greater than the planting. The harvest is greater than the planting. The best way I could describe this to you is you, um, you sow an acorn, you reap an oak tree. You sow an acorn, you, you reap an oak tree. And I want to be careful with this because I don't want to go name it, claim it, prosperity theology on you. We reject that theology. Sometimes, yes, that does mean I give financially, I, I get more financially back in return, but sometimes the harvest is even greater. My wife and I, we, we, just, have a, we just have a heart for church plants, especially multi-ethnic church planting, and we're always kind of getting behind them financially, and 
So I, I just, uh, we got behind this little church plant in Chicago, and uh, we got behind this leader and just gave a few nickels and, you know, kind of the best we could financially. And, and then in September, I'm there, and, and I've got tears in my eyes, and I'm looking around, a thousand people in the room, baptisms are happening, they just started this deal called the Chicago Partnership, lives are being changed. You, you, you talk about from an acorn to an oak tree. Being able to say, man, I've been a part of that. Law number four, the harvest is proportional to the planting. Look at what Jesus says. And again, in verse 38, he says, Given it will be given to you good measure, pressed down, shaken together, for with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. I'm going to bless you in proportion to your measure. One of the questions I get over the years is from well-meeting congregants who said, should, should, I, should I give, should I tithe off of the gross or the net? Now, I don't want to be legalistic. You let the Spirit speak to you on that. But two thoughts. Number one, it's God's before the government. And number two, do you want a net blessing or a gross blessing? <laughs> Law number five. We can't do anything about this year's harvest, but we can change next year's. My mother has a saying, I'll honor her with this on her birthday. My mother says, when we're young, we look like our parents, but when we're old, we look like our decisions. When we're young, we look like our parents, but when we're old, we look like our decisions. This works in a million different directions. Some of you are reaping right now what you've sown, and to be honest with you, you don't like what you've sown. Well, as an act of repentance, you can change next year's harvest. Now hear me, we don't give to get back. Paul tells the Corinthians, you will be enriched in every way that you may give in every way. Giving to get back is investing. We give to get back to give again. There's an old song we used to sing in my church growing up. You can't beat God given no, mat no matter how hard you try. We've all been here if you've got kids, right? Take these precious little tax write-offs out to eat. Sitting there at Chick-fil-A and, and you go, hey, can I have some of your waffle fries? And they kind of bogart and like, it's mine mine. And you're like, hey, little girl, hey, little girl, let me tell you something. I paid for that. <laughs> how, how are you going to hoard what you didn't even pay for? <laughs> and then I got to thinking, isn't that me? I don't want you to leave this sermon saying, I got to give, I got to give, I got to give. I want you to leave just sitting in the gospel where it says of Jesus Christ, though he were rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that we by his poverty might become rich. It's not this. It all belongs to you.
promise you, when you're flatlining, you're not going to go, should have upgraded to the 26-inch rims. Not that 26-inch rims are wrong. They're not. But what you're going to wish is, man, I wish I would have given more. I wish I would have sown more. So, Father, we bless you. Again, I love Paul's words. What do you have that you did not receive? God, this message, it's such a struggle because we can use it to become so legalistic and take what you're saying specifically to us about what house we should live in or or where we should vacation or what we should buy and kind of use that as a standard for everybody. God, I just pray a spirit of liberty in this place. God, to some of us, you are calling us to sell our house. Others of us, you're saying, no, I'm okay with your house and the fact that you have a second house. Just give us ears to hear. Give us hearts that respond to the generosity of you who gave his only son and Jesus who gave his only life. And may the testimony of the Summit Church and RDU and beyond is, oh yeah, that's that generous people. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.